0: Welcome to LifePoint Church. Our mission is to glorify God and make gospel-driven disciples by engaging people in the unexpected joy of a life more and more dependent on Jesus.
1: Malachi, chapter 1, verses 1 through 5. The oracle of the word of the Lord to Israel by Malachi. I have loved you, says the Lord. But you say, how have you loved us? Is not Esau Jacob's brother, declares the Lord? Yet I have loved Jacob, but Esau I have hated. I have laid waste his hill country and left his heritage to jackals of the desert. If Edom says, We are shattered, but we will rebuild the ruins, the Lord of hosts says, They may build, but I will tear down, and they will be called the wicked country, and the people with whom the Lord is angry forever. Your own eyes shall see this, and you shall say, Great is the Lord beyond the border of Israel. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, Your Word is life. Your Word is truth. Your Word guides us like a light in the darkness. And we ask this morning that You will open the eyes of our heart so that we can understand what you have to say to us. Give us a spirit of humble obedience, so that we can put into practice what you teach us from your word. And we pray this in the name of Jesus, amen. It's very difficult these days to try to describe our current culture. It is so chaotic, sometimes very contradictory, with all kinds of opinions. And how do we ever get a grasp of it to try to understand what's going on? There is a sociologist, Edwin Friedman, who has written a book called Failure of Nerve. And he, I think, as well as anyone, has given us a description of our current culture and society. Now, he's written this book. It's very dense, but I won't, and so I can't give you a summary of all he has to say. But his basic premise is that we live in a culture of chronic anxiety. Chronic anxiety. He gives evidence for this by pointing out that 39% of people today feel more anxious than they did a year ago. That's an enormous growth in anxiety, mental illness, and insecurity. Attachment disorder, which often manifests itself in divorce, marriage tensions, sexuality disorders, gender dysphoria, all of these things point to a culture of chronic anxiety, fear, and doubt. And no wonder it feels like life is just sort of falling apart. He gives several reasons for this chronic anxiety in our culture. One is we are a reactionary culture. People react passionately, aggressively, even viciously against circumstances and against each other. Anxious members find it almost impossible to be calm or optimistic or even playful. And the media thrives on this kind of strong emotional outburst, outbursts of anger and bitterness and accusation because they go viral and that generates income. Secondly, Friedman points out, we have a herding instinct. People seek security and safety in the herd. In the phase of chronic reactionary fear, we insist on conformity, and we're intolerant of differences from others. People are guided by the mob mentality. Third blame displacement, we feel like we are victims, and so we are quick to blame others for their problems rather than taking responsibility for our own lives. We look for the cause of our immediate pain and discomfort rather than look for the source of the core problem. And finally, we are people addicted to the quick fix. We look for data. We want to find the latest uh, technique, the latest method to solve the problem. We look for information to every crisis and every pain. Google is our source of information for every illness, every food addict, every kind of disease, even in religion. People no longer look first to the church for answers. They first search Google to get advice and counsel. And Freedom said that in order to break this gridlock of anxiety, we need to insert into the situation the non-anxious presence of a self-defined leader. Now, that's his term, a non-anxious presence. Now, in New Testament terms, that means we need followers of Jesus who are anchored in the truths of God's purpose and plan to be present in the social chaos and anxiety that surrounds us. The question is, that's easier said than done, how do we become the kind of non-anxious people who can bring peace into a culture of anxiety? We have been planning and praying about this and we believe that a study in the book of Malachi can offer us some wise counsel to realign our lives with the purposes of God. We think that what this minor prophet had to say can influence and guide us even in our 21st culture. Now you may be surprised that we've chosen Malachi, the last book of the Old Testament, to guide us through this chaotic anxiety of our culture. But I think you will be surprised at the depth and the relevance of this Old Testament prophet to our current situation. Let me give you some background about the book of Malachi, that last book in the Old Testament. He was talking to the little country of Judah. Judah was the remnant that had survived the exile into Babylon. And they now lived under the Persian Empire. The life and destiny of this little country, Judah, was controlled by the vast and mighty Persian Empire. Some dates of history, you don't have to remember all of this. But back in 538 BC, Darius I was the first king of the Persian Empire, and he was the one that allowed the Jews to begin to go return back to Judah and Jerusalem and repopulate their country. Then in 522, a second wave of immigrants returned to Jerusalem under a guy named Zerubbabel. (laughs) Ha ha, I found out how to pronounce that name. He was the one who was authorized to rebuild the temple in Jerusalem, and it was completed in 515 B.C. Now, That temple was not nearly as grand and glorious as the first temple built by King Solomon. And it was during this time When the prophets Haggai and Zechariah were prophesying. And they were prophesying that there would be a return of great prosperity in the land, and that Ezekiel had added that the kingdom of David would be restored, and there would be a new revival of the kingdom of Israel. Unfortunately, None of that really came to pass. And then in the next century, 458 B.C., about 80 years after that first wave of immigrants, Ezra and Nehemiah led a third wave of Jew refugees back to Jerusalem. First, Ezra came. He was a priest, and he came to restore the temple religious order. And under him, there was a religious revival for a time, but it didn't really last very long because the Persians and the Egyptians were fighting in that area and things just sort of came to a standstill. And so about 12 years after his coming, Nehemiah was appointed as the governor of this little country of Judah under the Persian kings. And it was set up as a province in the Persian empire called the province of Yehud. In 444, he came to Jerusalem and he vigorously improved the conditions of the city of Jerusalem. He finally was able to rebuild the walls of the city. Imagine this city had been going for almost 100 years with the walls torn down. It was decimated. There was corruption and exploitation by the rich. The priests were admonished to observe their duties and all the preliminary work had been completed, the covenant was renewed with God, and the nation agreed to keep the law of Moses and to provide means for the support of the temple. Unfortunately, after about 12 years, Nehemiah went back to the capital of Persia to give his report, and that was in about 433 B.C. We have these dates down pretty well, and in his absence, things fell apart again. I mean, they just, re- they went back to all that they had been doing before, and they desecrated the Sabbath, and merchants were selling wares on the Sabbath, and they were intermarrying. And so Nehemiah came back in the year 430 B.C. and tried to reestablish some of the order that he had tried before. And Malachi, now we're getting to him, Malachi was the prophet who brought his message in that interim when Nehemiah was gone, when things were deteriorating again between 433 and 430 BC. So Malachi is facing some of the same problems that Nehemiah, was facing. We need to realize that at that time, this little province of Yehud was pretty small and insignificant. In fact, archaeologists estimate that there was only about 50,000 people in the whole province, and that province Was only a little larger than the county of Larimer. Larimer County is about three fourths the size of the province of Yehud. And in the last census in Larimer County, we had 365,000 people compared with 50,000 in Yehud. And that means that in the city of Jerusalem, there was only 1,500 to maybe 2,000 people. These people were discouraged, they were disillusioned, they were cynical, they were dysfunctional. In the minds of most of the Jews in that province, God had failed his people. The people were uncertain about their identity, as the chosen people of god their perspective on yahweh was unclear and doubtful their situation <laughs> it seems to me was not unlike the cycle of anxiety that characterizes our culture today yes it's technically much different than everything but there is a lot of dysfunction and disillusionment today. As a result of their sense loss of their sense of identity, they were skeptical about God's love and his promises to them, they were apathetic toward their worship of God, and they were willing to compromise the covenant rules that the, of the tenets of their faith. Things were not going very well in Jerusalem when Malachi was called. Malachi begins his book with these words, the oracle of the word of the Lord to Israel by Malachi. Now an oracle is a technical word from the prophets. And it means the oracle was the revealed message that the prophet had received from God to deliver to the people. And it's used by several of the prophets. Now Malachi gives a whole series of these oracles or messages from God calling the people to realign themselves with the purposes and the plan of God. And I think it's these lessons that are gonna help guide us in our current situation in this culture of anxiety. Malachi, his name means my messenger. And some people think, well, maybe that was just his title, but it probably really was his personal proper name, messenger of God. Actually, that's about all we know about Malachi. He's not mentioned anywhere else in scripture. All we know is what is found in this book. We don't know who his parents were. We don't know what province he came from. We don't know how God called him. All we know is he's Malachi, God's messenger. And the first oracle, a word from Yahweh, is a declaration from God I have loved you. And then a rhetorical question posed from the people. The Lord makes a statement, the people question that statement, and then the Lord vindicates his position. And this pattern of a disputing speech kind of argument kind of a thing is a pattern that Malachi will follow throughout all of the book. And so about every text that we look at will follow this kind of a statement, a question, and God's response. And the first question is, how have you loved us? This is the question the people had in their hearts. And by asking that question, they're not asking about God's personal emotional feelings toward them. They're questioning God's faithfulness. They're questioning his commitment to them as his chosen people. It shows their skepticism about God's love and commitment to them. What they're really asking is, how can we know that God really loves us. (laughs) Has that thought ever crossed your mind? When life is difficult and it's falling apart, how can we be certain that God really cares for us? Teenagers, they often express this kind of frustration when they're grounded for bad behavior when the parents refuse to buy some new phone or game or dress, when they are not allowed to attend a concert or a movie, the teens can shout out, you hate me. If you really loved me, you wouldn't be doing this to me. Essentially, the question is that posed by the Jews. Lord, what have you done for us lately? Life in this small province of Yehud as a vassal state of Persia is hard, and it's difficult. It's been almost a century since you allowed some of us to return from Babylon, and the Persians still dominate and crush us on every side. The temple was rebuilt, and God promised through Haggai that prosperity would return and that the kingdom would be restored. But it has not happened. Lord, have you just forgotten us? What have you done for us lately? Do you really care? By asking that kind of question, the people are making God's love conditional. It's conditional love. If you really loved us, you wouldn't let this happen to us. If you loved me, you would be doing more to help me. If you loved me, you would heal my illness. If you loved me, you would solve my problems. And when we measure God's love by the number of blessings he brings in our life, we've reduced his love to some kind of conditional love. We measure it by the number of blessings he can bring to our life. If you loved me, you would not allow me to suffer in this situation. Now, God's answer to this Is very striking he first of all says I loved you because I chose Jacob (laughs) wait a minute where are you going God and he goes back to Jacob and Esau but he does this for a reason he wants to show to them his unconditional love And he goes back to Abraham and Isaac. And Jacob and Esau were the twin sons of Isaac and Rebekah. And God wants to show them back there how he unconditionally chose Jacob. And he hated the twin brother Esau. It's an interesting story how Isaac and Rebekah had these twin sons, and God did not choose the older twin, but he chose the younger twin to rule over the elder. Even before the twins were born, the Lord declared that the older son Esau would serve the younger son Jacob. That's in Genesis chapter 25. And instead of following the normal patterns of inheritance at that time, God decided that the line of promise would run through the younger son, Jacob. And this choice of election was not based on the boy's behavior, but rather on God's sovereign election of one, Jacob, and the rejection of the other, Esau. That is why God says, I loved Jacob, but Esau I hated. He's not talking about his emotional feelings for them. He's talking about his relationship with them and his commitment to them. I am committed to Jacob. I am not committed to Esau. And this sovereign choice was worked out in history, Jacob's descendants were called Israelites, and they became God's chosen people. Esau's descendants were called Edomites, and they were always outside of the promises of God. So when we read this declaration by God that he loved Jacob and he hated Esau, (laughs) well, I think, like you, I'm sort of surprised that he hated Esau. What's going on? That's pretty strong language. Actually, we should be surprised by how God loved Jacob. Is not Esau Jacob's brother? In fact, he is the older brother, and I should have loved Esau, but I chose to reject Esau and love Jacob. And That is the surprising choice of God. God's love is always undeserved grace, because we need to remember that neither Jacob nor Esau deserved God's love. In fact, both thoroughly deserved to be hated, rejected, and cast off by God. For his part, Esau despised the birthright that, he, that was his right to have, and he just disregarded it as something of little value, and he traded it for a bowl of soup. In other words, Esau just disregarded God's mercy and his promise. Meanwhile, Jacob sought to trick and manipulate his way into God's blessing, and he got Jacob, or his father Isaac, to bless him by trickery, because he didn't trust God to bless him on his own. Jacob showed he didn't trust God to provide for him. Esau, therefore, received what he deserved from God. Jacob received what he did not deserve from God, and this election by God proves that what he does for us is solely done by his grace and his sovereign love. In fact, both Esau and Jacob deserved God's hatred and rejection. They both we're wicked sinners. So what is God saying? He's saying, I have loved you with a free, sovereign, unconditional, electing love. That is how I have loved you. I love you because I am love. It's his sovereign choice. I chose Jacob and rejected Esau because out of my love for you, I chose you. I chose you before you had met any of the conditions. While you were still in your mother's womb, I loved you unconditionally. My love for you does not depend on anything you have done or not done. My love for you depends solely on my grace and my love. I chose you freely, out of my own grace. I was not under any constraint to love you. I was not forced to love you. My love for you is my sovereign choice, flowing out of my infinite grace that can never be bought. God's love for you and me is totally sovereign. It's free and it's unconditional. It is totally not what we deserve. God's unconditional love should overwhelm us with gratitude and humility. I remember in Africa, one Christmas season when the Christmas boxes were being distributed in Ivory Coast hot and humid, and that night, in the little church, windows are open, they didn't have windows. People were gathered, and at one of the open windows, there was this dirty, ragged little boy, snot running down his nose, flies swarming around his eyes, looking in the open window of the church, watching the other boys and girls get their shoebox gifts. When suddenly the pastor walked over to the window and gave a box to this little boy, and his eyes just shocked open, and he began to cry. And he climbed in through the window and he grabbed the feet of the pastor and they began to kiss them because he was just overwhelmed by the gift that he knew he did not deserve. But God goes further in verses 3 and 4. God shows his love for Jacob by describing his rejection and judgment of Esau and his descendants, the Edomites. He says in verse 3 and 4, I have laid waste his hill country, he's talking about Edom, and left his heritage to the jackals of the desert. If Edom says we are shattered but we will rebuild the ruins, the Lord of Hosts says they may rebuild but I will tear down, and they will be called the wicked country and the people with them, the Lord is the people with whom the Lord is angry forever. How does God's judgment of Esau's descendants the Edomites prove his love for Jacob's descendants the Israelites? Remember this, God's judgment of Esau and the Edomites is a deserved judgment. It is not arbitrary. And this is part of the prophecy that we are reminded of in these these two verses. It refers back to the history when Nebuchadnezzar came to Jerusalem to destroy the temple, and the city, and take people off into exile. And in order to do that, they had to pass, come from the south, through the land of Edom, the descendants of Esau. And the Edomites, at that time, sided with Nebuchadnezzar and helped him in his attack and siege of Jerusalem. They allowed the the army to pass through their land, and after it was destroyed, they went into the city, and they looted the belongings of the Israelites, and even according to Obadiah and Ezekiel, these Edomites stood by the paths where they were trying to escape, and they, they caught them and turned them back over to the Babylonians. So, for a while, The Edomites flourished (laughs) under Nebuchadnezzar, but history was not kind to them, and they were soon scattered by the other Arab tribes of the land, and they had to move further south into a land called Edomia. Now, I don't have time to remind you about the story of King Herod in the time of Jesus, but I'm going to tell you just a little bit anyway. King Herod, you know, was from Edomia. He was from the descendants of Esau, and the Roman Senate declared him king of the Jews. He was married to a Jewess and had converted to that religion, at least in name, not in really heart, and he enjoyed trying to be the king of the Jews. And so when he heard that there was a new king of the Jews born in Bethlehem, what did he do? He had all the little babies killed because he didn't want any competition. He knew he didn't belong on the throne of David. He was not a descendant of Jacob, the chosen one. And when Jesus was being tried, they called Herod. And Herod says, are you really the king of the Jews? And Jesus, who really was the king, didn't even answer him. That's just a footnote. What we need to see here is that Edom, never revived never was restored god says they will be annihilated and they will never ever come back because you see my choice and my election is irrevocable what My rejection of Esau is irrevocable. It's unconditional, but it will never change. And so it is for Esau. It will never change. That is why God says, Your eyes shall see this, and you shall say, Great is the Lord beyond the border of Israel. The real question of this passage is not, How can God hate Esau? But how can God continue to love Jacob in the light of their ongoing rebellion and covenant breaking? And the answer in the New Testament to that is that the enduring, faithful commitment of God to his people is exercised through Jesus Christ. Christ, God was willing to destroy His Son on the cross with all of our sins so that we could live by His righteousness, so that we could experience His love. And so today, we know, how do we know that God really loves us? Here's God's answer to us today. In that while we were still sinners, Christ died for us. Romans 5, 8. We were alienated from God. We were dead in our trespasses and sin, yet God saw our condition and initiated our adoption. The key verse I want to read is Ephesians chapter one. Praise the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ, who has blessed us in Christ with every spiritual blessing in the heavens. For he chose us in him Before the foundation of the world, to be holy and blameless in his sight. In love, he predestined us to be adopted through Jesus Christ for himself, according to his favor and will, to the praise of his glorious grace that he favored us with in the beloved. Romans 8:29 and 30. For those whom he foreknew, he also predestined to be conformed to the image of his Son. And those he predestined, he also called. And those whom he called, he also justified. And those whom he justified, he also glorified. God's love is unconditional. The nation of Israel did nothing to deserve their election or salvation, and in the same way we have done nothing to deserve our salvation. And we can do nothing to persuade him to love us more, and neither can we do anything wrong to make him love us any less. God's love is irrevocable. And no one will ever love you like God. And the only response we should have is to trust him and put our anchor, our life, in his promise. God's sovereign, unconditional, free grace of election means that we are God's chosen people. We belong to him, and he will never let us go. His election is irrevocable, and he will bring us someday to glory no matter what. And this is the truth that anchors our soul and gives us peace that passes understanding and takes away the anxiety of this culture. We can become the non-anxious people that we need today in America. When our souls are stressed by storms, we anchor our lives in the irrevocable, unconditional love of Jesus Christ. Now I know many people here are learning that truth in their life, and you are living the non-anxious life. Some of you are going through very stressful times, and some of you are facing cancer and illness and divorce and other calamities. But by God's grace, some of you are learning how to trust him One of those is Joe Rich. Joe, I'm gonna ask if you will come. I want Joe to share because he's been going battling cancer and he's gone through radiation treatment on the larynx and he's gone through the test to see how it's gone but he's been learning these lessons. Tell us what you've been learning through all of this battle and
0: the results that you have gotten.
1: Thank you, Dale.
0: Um, first, uh, before I answer Dale's question, I'd just like to thank God's church. Life Point Church cared for us well. Craig mentioned that during the, his uh, uh, remarks earlier, uh, how you take, we take care of people, and you took care of us very, very well. You took care of us at home, You brought us food, and more importantly, you prayed for us. Many of you have prayed for us every day for the last six months, and I can't tell you how much that means to me and my family, so thank you. My journey through cancer started almost exactly six months ago. Uh, At the beginning of March, uh, I had been struggling with a hoarse voice, which I still have a little bit, you can tell. And I went to the doctor, and he found a large mass in my throat on my vocal cords. A week later, six months ago yesterday, Gretchen and I walked into the PVH for an a outpatient biopsy. And I woke up in the intensive care unit. And I was there six months ago today. I couldn't speak. Uh, I had to write things out on, the, on a pad of paper. Uh, to make any communication. And it just wasn't what we had planned. I had six surgeries. Three of them failed. But what I found was God was there, no matter what. He was good through all of it. He was present in the hospital. He was present when I could barely get out of bed at home. And we had... Seven weeks of treatment that started at the beginning of April went through near the end of May where I had three rounds of chemotherapy and 35 rounds of radiation on top of each other. And I was sick. All of you who saw me during that time say I look great now because of how bad I looked then. (laughs) But one thing that I really learned that God taught me was how good he is. I didn't want cancer. None of us want cancer or divorce or lose a job or whatever the trouble is. But we all know that we're going to face trouble. Scripture says that. But I didn't want cancer. But boy, the Lord was sure good to our family through the whole time. Recently, I've had some encouraging news. The treatment looks like it was working. I had a PET scan a week and a half ago, and Gretchen and I walked out of the oncologist office a week and a half ago, and we were encouraged. She grabbed my hand as we walked down the hallway at the cancer center, and she said, "God is good." And I just want to share with you the big lesson that I've learned that God has taught me. And I told her, "God is good, but not because we got." a good, encouraging report. God is good because God is good. It is his nature and his character is good. He can't be not good. Sorry for the double negative there. He can't, he is good because that is what he is. And so I value that lesson. Now I still have a ways to go. And if I get bad news three months from now and another PET scan, guess what? God will still be good. Have you got a verse
1: that anchored your faith in this? Story? Sure. Uh, uh,
0: I don't know if I can pick just one. I'll say Romans eight twenty eight: All things work together for good for those who are called to his purpose. I hope you hear that all, all things, including cancer, work together for good. And Nahum one seven: The Lord is good, a stronghold in the day of trouble.
1: I'm gonna ask you to lead us in prayer. Pray for me, pray for all of us, that we can learn this lesson, that God is good, unconditionally.
0: All right, let's pray together. Gracious Father in heaven, I just thank you for your word. I thank you that you loved us first and that we don't have to work We can't earn your love, Lord. You give it freely. I pray, Lord, that your church, the people that make up your church here at LifePoint and beyond, can learn and trust that you are good. You say it in your word, and it is true. You are good, Lord. I pray that each of us can find rest in your sovereignty you were not surprised by my cancer diagnosis but Lord you were there and I pray for each of us in this room who are going through trouble it might be cancer it might be something else another sickness another uh, trouble at home with a, a spouse or a child or a parent maybe you've lost your job Lord all things work together for good. And I pray that you would show us that path to know that you are good. So, Lord, encourage, comfort those who are going through trouble, and comfort those who will go through trouble in the future. And I pray that in the name of our precious Savior Jesus. Amen. That concludes Life Point Church's podcast. For more information about our church, visit sharethelife.org.